0: Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by wealthmanagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of wealthmanagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests join me to talk about their journey dealing with the struggle and how they found healing. My guest today is John Highland, co-founder and executive officer of Private Advisor Group, an RIA, and the largest office of supervisory jurisdiction at LPL Financial. Uh, he's in Morristown, New Jersey. John, thank you for being on the podcast today.
2: Oh, thank you, Diana. It's a pleasure.
1: So, John, he's been in the industry for 31 years. A lot of people know John, but few people know his personal story. So I'm really lucky and really grateful to have him joining to share his journey. When John was younger, he became involved with the New Jersey chapter of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, a cause that was dear to him at the time because he, um, a beloved aunt had died from acute myeloid leukemia. Am I saying that right, John?
2: Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> it's a form of blood cancer, but he couldn't know at the time how fateful that choice would be for him. In 2010, John was diagnosed with AML himself, and the disease came back two times since then. So you've been through a lot, John. And um, so, I mean, just for for purposes of education, for, for listeners, the AML is a type of cancer in which the bone marrow makes abnormal white blood cells, red blood cells, or platelets.
2: Correct, there's different versions of it. Um- but AML is considered the most dangerous, deadly form of blood cancer.
1: Yeah, so take us back to 2010 when you knew something was wrong with your body. How did you get the, uh, you had a bone marrow biopsy. How did you know something was wrong? How did you find out?
2: Yeah, well, I, I probably would wanna go back a little bit before 2010, just to give a little context. Sure. I For, for the decade prior to 2010, I was in the greatest shape of my life. I was training 15, 20 hours a week. I raced the Ironman every year. Wait,
1: I want to stop you for a second. Tell us, the Ironman Triathlon, what does that entail? That is a crazy physical – I mean, it's one of the most difficult sporting events in the world, right?
2: Um, Some would say that, yes. It is a (laughs) uh, a a 2.4-mile open water swim. Then transition to a hundred and twelve mile bike ride, and then finally a twenty six point two marathon. Wow! And Crazy. it may sound difficult, but uh, when you break it down, like most things in life, it's it's manageable.
1: Mm. So you were doing a lot of physical training. I did for those
2: uh, during that that ten years before two thousand ten. I I just knew my body really really well because of the. The amount of time I exercised and trained, so any little anything that was kind of wrong, I could feel it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, again, for that whole ten-year period, I, I raced the Ironman every year. Uh, 2008, I actually ended up in the World Championship um, Ironman race in Kona, Hawaii. Wow!
3: And
2: and then um, in 2009, I said, you know, what, I'm going to take it and take gonna take a year off to train and uh-huh. uh, not to train and not to race. And, and now we go back to 2010. So I started to start to training again in early 2010. Mm. And I just, just didn't have it. You know, I couldn't find second gear. Um, it just wasn't coming naturally to me that it usually did. And maybe I'm saying yeah, you're John, you're a year older. Maybe you mm. should have never take taken that year off. <laughs> um, but you know I tried to I try to barrel through it and it just didn't wasn't working so I my fortunately I have my my one of my best friends is my um, doctor uh, dr. Tony Ciosi mm-hmm. and I called him and said hey Tony something's wrong with me I just I just know it and he's a big athlete himself and he says well come on in if there's something wrong we're gonna find out what it is and so he did all the normal tests that someone would do or a doctor would do to see if there's anything wrong and two weeks later, two, sorry, two days later, he called me and said, you're fine. You're crazy. You're just getting old. Get, you yeah. know, work harder.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: And um, I took that advice and I went back to my life and continued to try to train and, and op- operate at, uh, at the office. And that's probably two weeks later, I called him again. I said, Tony, I'm, I know something's wrong. So he um, did more tests, found nothing. He, Uh, referred me to a number of doctors, a rare disease doctor, and then ultimately a hematologist. And that was kind of my last stop. And this was over a period of two, three months, probably at this point. And I met with a a hematologist and he says, tell you what, John, I'm going to do all the blood work we can do. And if there's anything wrong, we're going to find out.
3: Mm.
2: So he called me two weeks later. I was, yeah, about two weeks later. And said, I got good news for you and I have bad news for you. Mm. The good news is nothing's wrong with you. The bad news, we don't know what's wrong with you. Okay. And I I just- That's frustrating. Incredibly. And I just kept pushing. It's kind of part of my personality in certain ways. And I said, well, what else can I do? And he says, the only other test we could do, which would not be prudent, is to do a bone marrow biopsy. He goes, Mm -hmm. that's the only other test we can do. And I said, let's do it. And I knew a little bit about that. I know they're not fun. And I can confirm to you that they are not fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the next day, I did a a bone marrow biopsy. And uh, two days later, I was over in my office. And when my flip phone started to ring, I opened it. And there was my hematologist calling me. Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, huh, that's kind of odd. And he says, hey, John, um, is there any chance that you and your wife can come by to the hospital and meet with me later today? Mm. And and that didn't sound well. Yeah. And I said, what's up, Doc? And he goes, no, (laughs) it's just much better that we do this in person and your wife attending. That would be really that would really be really good. And so we kind of went back and forth and I said, listen, I'm a little bit of an Irish guy. I said, doc, I'm not coming. I'm busy today. You have to tell me what's wrong. Yeah. And and after a a back and forth a couple of times, he said this, you have AML.
3: Mm.
2: And to, I think a lot of people, they don't necessarily what that means. But as what you said earlier, Deanna, I, I had been involved with Leukemia Society for 10 years prior And I know exactly what AML is Mm. and I know what the prognostic results will likely be. So we talked for a little bit longer uh, on the phone with the doctor. And of course, I agreed to come over to the hospital with my wife right away.
3: Mm.
2: And um, this may sound unusual, but at the time it was a very, uh, it was was a question that just came to my mind. I said to him, I said, doc, am am I going to live? And it was silence. And he finally says, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And that day was a tough day for me, obviously, because I was in total shock. Again, I knew something was wrong with me, but I didn't know I had AML of all Mm. things. So they gave me the night to talk to my children, talk to my mother, two of the toughest things that I've ever had to do. Mm. Uh, At the time, my daughter was 12, my son was 10, and my youngest was six, and I had to sit them down that night. Mm. Uh, I sat down with my 10-year-old and my 12-year-old, and I kind of gave them the overview, but very soft because I don't want to be too direct, Yeah. but I didn't want to totally lie either. Mm. And I said that, you know, the the medicine I need, you can't have it in the house, They only have it at the hospital and I'm going to be for the hospital for, you know, maybe a month or two. And they, they seem to understand it. They see some fear in their eyes, but I think they accepted it. They were confused.
3: Mm.
2: And then I went to my six year old. Mm. He was watching TV. I pulled him aside. I gave him a very similar type of speech Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he goes, okay, can I go back to the TV show?
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and and it made my night mm. because at six years old he really didn't understand it at all. Yeah. Um, and then I had to go to my mother, and that was that was a that was very difficult. My mom mm. lost her husband, my father, my father two years ago. Prior to that, and uh, she was still struggling. And so for me to come to her house and tell her that mm. was a that was a tough one. Mm, I bet. Yeah. And then the next morning I was admitted to the hospital and started treatment immediately.
1: So tell us about that next year or so for you. You know, what was the treatment like? I know you, it was definitely uh, tough. You said that was the worst, mm-hmm. the worst time.
2: It was, it was definitely the darkest period of my life. No doubt about it. Um, mm-hmm. The treatment is barbaric. It is difficult. It hurts. Um, the thing about AML, especially the form of AML I had, it's like a burning fire. It's not something you can wait on. It has to be addressed very aggressively, or you or you lose. Mm. And so I'd say when I was when I was admitted to the hospital that morning, uh, they would put me on a chemotherapy called cytarabine, and they would put it on for twenty four hours. For seven straight days wow. and it it kills everything ideally the, the cancer as well but it kills pretty much everything else in you mm. and you have no immune system at, at the end of the process and it, it was just a dark dark time and and part of the darkness for me was a facing my mortality mm. at 43 years old um but it was the it was the rapid how rapid it was happening. Mm. I never I never was anger about you know why me. It was it was more about why is this going to happen so fast, and I wasn't going to have that opportunity to. I won't, I won't use the word say goodbye, mm. but in part that's what it was. Mm. I. Yes, for then those first couple of weeks in the hospital, they were they were absolutely brutal. I had um four days of 105 fever. They literally, I'm not I'm not embellishing here at all. Um uh, they would put me in a in a bed or a pool of ice for the entire mm-hmm. day. Wow. And then they had to put um things in my mouth so my my teeth didn't break because I was chattering so much.
3: Oh my gosh. And it
2: was it was a really that was the period when they thought they were that I, they would lose me with those high fevers. And for some reason, I came out of them, um, kind of went in and out of consciousness for a number of days past that, and uh, kind of, I don't want to say I woke up one day, but uh, I did come around and open my eyes, and there was um, my wife and my priest. Mm. And I, I looked at them, and I just closed my eyes again, and I probably slept for another 12 hours or another day or so
1: Mm. when you finally you know woke up what was that conversation like with your wife and it was the i'm guessing the priest wasn't there anymore but
2: um i wasn't it really wasn't a great conversation because i was so ill Mm. it's not as if that i had my mental capacities in a great place or my spiritual (laughs) uh we talked a little bit um she was the only one that was allowed in my room. Mm. You know, I was quarantined to the extreme. And, um, you know, she had the shield on and the gloves on and the man and town on and everything. And um, so I didn't have a lot of interaction with anybody other than doctors and, and my wife. And I could tell you, my wife is, uh, she's a rock, mm. you know, through this whole process.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I know that typically when people get chemotherapy, they kind of, they go in like once a week, right? And they are there for like a couple hours and then they leave. But you were there, you had chemo 24 hours a day, you said?
2: 24 hours a day for seven straight days.
1: That's, that's crazy.
2: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't fun. But the, the good news is that eventually I uh, was in remission.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And I remember the doctor coming in with that great news, and I was definitely feeling better physically. Um, So they they tell you that awesome news, you're in a mission. Mm
3: -hmm. And then
2: 10 minutes later, they say, it's going to come back. So now we have to think about part two. Mm -hmm. And part two for me was either doing a transplant at that point in time, or that I would just do extended chemotherapy for four more months. Mm -hmm. Um, My sisters weren't uh, perfect matches so, statistically, my oncologist said we should go with the extended chemo. He thought that statistically that would give me my best chance to survive. Mm-hmm. And so that was four more months of hospitalized chemotherapy. It wasn't 24 7, but uh, they would do it for five hours a day, give me a day off, but I was still at the hospital. You were and still, then oh. five hours, take a day off, five hours. And then I would typically, I was allowed to go home for, for a week between those. Um, But I couldn't be around anybody. It was just my wife and me, the kids would be in the house periodically. And which was kind of really difficult because, you know, in times like now you want your family, you want to hug your family and your kids and you couldn't,
1: Mm. um,
2: I couldn't hug the kids for, I don't know, months and months and months. Which made it really weird.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people are struggling with that right now with COVID 19, not being able to see their loved ones if they're ill. But um, so you had recovered, you kind of recovered from that bout of cancer. You gained strength. You went back to work uh, in 2011, but it was still, you know, things were still difficult for you. You were um, struggling with depression, right? During yes. That time?
2: I did uh, not something I knew mm-hmm. because I was depressed. Uh, it was really my wife identifying it and my oncologist, and so I'm 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 I'm, an, I'm Irish Catholic, and typically what we do with emotions is we just jam it down and just Stuff hope it, it never comes back up. Yeah, and, uh, that didn't work, and my doctor encouraged me to go see a therapist, and it. It probably took two three months for me to accept that and I remember going to the uh, my first therapy session and I was I was fine I was feeling strong I go in the room I sit down he asks me one question and I cried for 45 minutes with Mm. without stop with no other questions Mm. and I left there feeling so much better and it's I can't explain why Um, we had some more meetings that were a whole lot more constructive. <laughs> we sure. actually did have conversations. Sure. And, and, and he's really helped me a whole lot managing a lot of the anxiety and the reality of, of, you know, having a cancer like AML.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, I guess I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but what are some of the things that he has taught you and that you've, uh, taken, uh, to heart in terms of overcoming the anxiety and the depression.
2: Yeah. So he, he's a special doctor. He's an oncologist and a therapist. Mm. So that's kind of where I really found the connection because he, he understood the disease I have. Yeah. And, and the challenges and we went through a lot of different exercises. Um, but he wasn't the type of doctor that he wanted to talk about, you know, did I wet my bed when I was eight years old? It was, it wasn't one of those type of approaches and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. He was just very pragmatical and he was, he was really good for me and we got along and we just talked a lot. Mm. And some of that I probably don't want to share.
1: Yeah, sure. Of course.
2: But uh, I, I still see him every, don't you know, 90, 180 days and um, you know, mental illness is tough and it's hard to diagnose and it's hard to, to see it. Mm. And, um, you know, I took some, I took medications probably for six months, got off of it. I, I really don't have depression anymore. Um, you know, I, periodically, I guess we all get a little depression, <laughs> but, uh, uh, things went really well from there. And, and that, in that period also, also after, um, 2010, 2011, um, I was dealing with another, um, disease that I'll talk about. I guess I probably better to talk about it after transplant.
1: Yeah. So tell us about the um, the second time that uh, the disease came back. How did you find out? It was about four years later.
2: It was about four and a half years later. Um, I had been with my oncologist probably a month earlier, and he did all his tests, and he says, "John, I don't worry about you anymore." He goes. He's been in, in this space for 30 years, and he says I, I could maybe name three or four people that relapsed um, this far in. And sure enough, <laughs> mm. he shouldn't have said that. Uh, it was probably about two months later. I was and uh, re- I relapsed, and I was actually interestingly, I was going to um, the Invest in Others Gala in New York City, and then I had a car service taking me in and. And literally a block away from the event, my oncologist called again and Mm -hmm. he says, John, I'm sorry, this is the hardest conversation to to make, but it's back Mm
1: -hmm. and you
2: need to be back in the hospital tomorrow.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: And, uh, but I went through, I went into the invest in Others gala. Wasn't necessarily my favorite night, (laughs) but I felt like I had to should or should. And uh, it was a difficult night. Went home and, uh, went right back to work so to speak.
1: Yeah, so what was the treatment the second time?
2: Yeah, there was a couple steps we had to focus on. First, we needed to get me in remission, which could or could not happen. Now, Fortunately, I did get in remission after four months of chemotherapy. Um, during that period, we were trying to identify a donor, the best donor I could get. Um, I did get a, a great donor. He was a 26-year-old male in Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they had to prepare you for transplant, which is another ugly chemotherapy Mm regimen. And then, um, they scheduled my bone marrow transplant on, um, Good Friday, 2015. And I thought to myself, really, we're going to do this on Good Friday. Mm -hmm. That wasn't such a great day for Jesus. But I guess all things considered, it worked out pretty well for him. So I, I went forward with it. <laughs> and um, that was probably when you, when you do get a transplant like that, they take, they take down your immune system completely. There's nothing. Mm. And so then when you get your new marrow or stem cell, um, it takes about three to four weeks to see it come back up. Your immune Mm -hmm. system, and -hmm. that's a very anxious time, obviously, because it might not come up at all, and that's not a good thing, obviously. Um, But every day, you know, you look at the numbers, and they they stay flat, and then eventually, fortunately for me, they did start to pop up around day twenty-two. And I was I was uh, admitted. I was uh, discharged from the hospital, probably a month after transplant, Uh, but I would be outpatient. Pretty much every day for the next three four months, mm. with testing on a daily basis. Okay. And one of the great challenge challenges for many people with transplant is a disease called um, GVHD, graft mm-hmm. versus host disease. And and really what it is, it's your new immune system. So now I have an immune system of a 26 year old German man, and that immune system is looking at my body as a foreign body so it attacks all your organs right and and that's not fun i had that for for a while for a good year and a half of that mostly it was my skin and my gi and my mouth and um it was difficult it was a hard time so it was you know, you, you, you had a successful transplant, but you don't feel well at all. And then the medications you needed to take to, to deal with GVHD uh, was not fun either. It, it changed you. It was a lot of steroids, high level of steroids that make you not yourself. And um, so that was another big challenge at post-transplant.
1: Yeah. And so I know that you had to be... Uh- quarantined a lot during this whole experience and you know for for me I've never had to experience that being quarantined until a few months ago um and you know but this is not new to you this whole experience and so I'm just wondering you know what was that experience like for you uh, during having cancer not seeing your kids and how did you cope with that For, for me I'm able to see my my family and um you know that's it's not as hard as it was for you, I guess.
2: There's different versions of quarantine, right? There's mm. there's ones where you just can't be around anybody. Um, and with with the COVID nineteen that we've all been dealing with in the last couple of months and and continue to, um, it it was it was it was maybe good and bad for me. Um, it did trigger some um, emotions for me from the past mm. about. You know, quarantining and, and quarantine and, and um, but in the flip side of it, um you know, I, it was very natural for me to, to have a mask and gloves and keep distance. It was really, I found it very easy over the last couple months, simply because of my history. I mm-hmm. could tell you that over the last 10 years, I probably was quarantined for probably close to a year total over those 10 years. Wow. So, you know, it's tough though, and, and for me in this COVID-19 um, pandemic, I, I really felt bad for people that don't have means or loved ones around them. It, it, it's, it's hard enough when you have loved ones around and people to help you versus people that don't have anybody. And that's, that was really the hardest thing for me in the last couple months, thinking about those people.
1: Yeah. And you actually had to move because of your immune system. You've had to deal with COVID a little bit differently from other folks, right? I mean, um, you you had to move your uh, home office uh, out of New Jersey, right? Or not out of New Jersey, but to a more secluded part of New Jersey.
2: Yeah. So my doctors highly encouraged me to uh, kind of relocate to a less dense town. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Marstown, New Jersey, which is a Amazing town awesome town, but there's a fair, fair amount of people and uh, we're blessed to have a, um, a House on the bay down in Long Beach Island. So they encouraged us to relocate and we moved down here um, I think March 16th and It's it's really been it's been great because there's a lot of fresh air and it's not a lot of people and I am blessed to have my three kids which all together with us for the last three months and the next two months as well and that that's something that's probably never going to happen again since they're in college and doing their thing and um, it's been a real um, silver lining for me in this process.
1: Yeah it's such valuable time spent with the kids in the last couple months. Um, So I know you know uh, you've had a Lot of several moments in your life where you thought you were going to die, and uh, you know, mortality is top of mind for a lot of folks right now. Do you still have those thoughts? Do you fear that it's going to come back? And how do you cope with that? And how have you coped with it in the past?
2: So, yes, I've had periods in the past that I thought I was gonna die, and I've had periods in the past that I knew that I was gonna die, which Mm. is a different kind of animal. A couple of times in the last, not couple of years, but back when I would get abrupt symptoms, very similar to the first time in 2010, which would make me think I'm gonna die. And uh, my therapist helped me a whole lot about that. Um, But I think that for me, it's evolved. It's not about the fear of dying, it's about, you know, you have a certain amount of time left on this earth and what are you gonna do with it? Mm-hmm. And, cause that's what we can control. We can't control when, um, but we control what we do and how we do it and what are our priorities. And, and there's, there's a number of silver linings around cancer, um, for me at least, that it gives you a perspective about what really matters. Um, and what I used to think was a problem I didn't get upgraded to my, on um, uh, United to first class. I mean, that was a problem back when, and you, you, you laugh at those things now, like that is not important at all.
3: Mm.
2: It, so cancer does really do give you a perspective that you can't have unless you've done it. I think there's a lot of things like that in life. So really I, I had, I really don't focus on, am I going to die? I mean, we're all gonna die. It's just as, is not going to hopefully be soon, um, and what do I want to do with the time? And that's probably my biggest takeaway from the cancer experience: is just what are you going to do with your time? What are your priorities, and really do what is most important to you?
1: Yeah, and what are those things for you that are most important?
2: Uh, they evolve. I can tell you that. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> are you still music. doing? Are you still doing Iron Man these days?
2: I I wish, but my, my, my mind's not ready and my body is not ready now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I hope somewhere in my mind hopes that I can get one more in a little bit Mm -hmm. of a competition between me and cancer. You know, I want to be the winner on the end. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's my plan.
1: Yeah. And I mean, John, just hearing your story, it's, 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 even harder than I originally thought. Just um, what you went through. How did you manage to run Private Advisor Group, which is a, a large, significant firm in the industry, through through these times? I know you you said that you leaned heavily on your coworkers and the folks at PAG, um, and that they were uh, great, you know, during those times. But how did you manage to run it?
2: Well, I think earlier in my life, I learned that you need to surround yourself with great people. It makes a huge difference in your life. Um, and I'm blessed to have um, co-workers and friends, uh, Pat Sullivan, Jim Perhax, and James Sullivan. They picked me up and carried me through through many periods of this journey, put it that way. But we as an organization, we, we're very democratic. We, yes, we have titles, but we really deal with all of our decisions as a collective group. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it worked just fine for us. But um, again, I, I, I was blessed to be surrounded by great people. And, and they, they didn't miss a beat. They supported me every single way in the process. And, and I think it's unique to see it the way it went. There was never complaints they worked more hours every day never complained and um they always said that hey we've got the easy part yeah you got the hard part john don't worry about it and so we've learned to um adopt adapt and um, continue to move forward
1: yeah i mean I kinda, i remember thinking when my dad had cancer you know, and I, I wanted him to do chemotherapy and all this stuff, and I'm like, well, I'm not the one going through this. He's the one going through this. You know, so um, they were right to say that. I think. Well, I, we're just about out of time, John. I I mean, I could listen, to, you know, to this all day. I'd I'd like to thank you for joining me, John. Thank you so much for being on the show, and just especially for being so open and honest about what you went through. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Diana. I I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. And if in any way it helps anybody else, um, that's what matters.
1: Yeah, and that's what this podcast is all about. And if you'd like to reach out to John, if you have any questions about his journey, his uh, disease that he had in the past, or anything about Private Advisor Group, you can email him at john.highland, H-Y-L-A-N-D, at privateadvisorgroup.com. And that will also be in the show notes below. If you yourself have a struggle and you'd wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at b at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there is healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.